0: A rotor to cover at least 24 hours time of prayer in that place. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? Make this a much shorter sermon, for one thing. If I could just say that. Unfortunately, the Book of Andrew's not in the Bible. Well, it's in my Bible, but not yours. I think I've got to be honest to say, like, this type of prayer we're going to do this 24 hours. It's not the only way of prayer. You may remember, if you were here last time I spoke, I talked about revivals. Um, and I will talk more actually about that later but I talked about a guy, John Tyson who'd been around different revivals places where they'd been and said the one thing they had in common was simply hunger there were different denominations different ways that they got to that place so we haven't chosen a 24 hours of prayer because we think it's a guaranteed way to grow a church or bring revival or bring the presence of God we're doing it because we think it's what God is doing now though and what he's calling us to do, and that we want to be a part of that. I'm going to start today by looking at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. If you want to turn to Matthew 6, I've been listening to a number of sermons uh, recently. Had one guy, he's actually the same guy, John Tyson. He preached on the Lord's Prayer one sermon, and then at the start of his next sermon, he's reading out the Lord's Prayer again and saying, Oh, you're all worried now, I'm doing exactly the same sermon as last week. Whereas I was worried, that just because I preached on the Lord's Prayer last year, I think, oh, can I preach on this again <laughs> so soon afterwards? I was going to suggest, because we know it so well, reading this together, but we probably probably them from different versions and have different versions memorized, so it's probably been a bit of a mess. In fact, I remember once, this is over 20 years ago, there was a film called The Miracle Maker. It was like a claymation film about the life of Jesus. Um, and in that, they actually just quoted straight from the Bible, most of Jesus' speech. Um, and we went with some of the family, and my gran was there, and she was quoting along to all the scripture, but from a different version. So, like, in my ear during the film, I've got, like, the same meaning, but not quite the same words. <laughs> Don't think they made that a DVD extra. Oh, I remember when DVDs were the future. <laughs> anyway, Matthew 6. Verses 9 and 10. This then is how you should pray Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to stop there because I just want to focus on that part of the prayer and start by looking in verse 10. It talks about the kingdom of God. Jesus talked about this kingdom a lot. He's continually going around saying the kingdom of God is here or the kingdom of heaven is here, as it's put in Matthew's Gospel. They mean the same thing. Uh, Dallas Willard said kingdoms are about the range of effective will. And so Jesus was talking about this range, the will of God being done is coming to earth through him. At that time, the people of Israel were looking for a king to free them from Roman occupation, to bring back the glory days of David or Solomon. Um, But Jesus was announcing something very different. To him, that earthly kingdom stuff just was not important. He was saying, it's time for God's will to be done here on earth. When he follows then with, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's really just explanation of what your kingdom come means. Gonna play a little game with you now, word association. This might not go well with loads of you shouting out, but we'll give it a try. Do the usual word association thing. I'll say a word, you say back to me the first word you think of. Okay. Left. Right. Up. Oh. Cat. Oh. Heaven. Hell. Right. Did that. It was a bit deliberately tricky, you see, they were all, the first thing, they were all the obvious thing was the opposite. And some of you say, hell, which is not the an- well, it's the answer I wanted, but not, if you see what I mean. Well, we'll talk about that. We get accused some in some areas of the church, probably us, I don't know if we've even been accused of it, personally as a church at some point, of not talking about hell enough. We don't talk about it a lot, I'll be honest, but that doesn't mean we don't talk about it enough. If you look at Jesus' ministry, he didn't talk about hell a lot. If you read through Acts, you don't see it talked about earthly at all. There's a thing you may have heard of called the Fire and Brimstone Sermon, that thing where there's preachers saying, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd end up? Basically trying to get people to just give their lives to Jesus just out of pure fear. And yet that sermon is nowhere to be found in the Bible, nowhere in the book of Acts. Did the apostles go around using hell as a way to try and get people to believe in Jesus? In fact, a lot of what we think of about hell is not in the Bible at all. That's another series. I'm not talking about that today. The one we probably don't, won't do is we don't talk about hell much. But it's because it's not where our focus should be. Like, here's another game we'll try. Can anyone find me a sentence in the Bible with the words heaven and the word hell in it? Want to start flicking through? Maybe get on your phone. I can see Tom's thinking. I'll, I'll save you the trouble, Tom. It's not there. Not a single verse in the Bible. I'm setting you up again. What you will find in the same sentence, in the same as the word heaven, is earth, throughout the Bible. Uh, Tim Mackie, who uh, runs the Bible Project, which is if you've not seen it, some great videos on YouTube, well worth watching. He says this. The Old Testament storyline is about God selecting one family out of the nations, and what he wants to do is at least restore heaven and earth as closely as possible in and through this one family. And so Israel is that family. Israel was called to be a nation of generosity and justice, and within themselves, as as a little picture of heaven and earth, more united than it is anywhere else. Israel, it turns out, has a rift between heaven and earth in themselves just as much as anywhere else. And so the story of the New Testament is the story of Jesus coming as the one person in whom heaven and earth completely overlap. And he comes through his kingdom to begin to do something for humans that they couldn't do for themselves, through his life and death and resurrection, and then through his kingdom movement and the coming of his spirit to begin a people movement in whom heaven and earth is overlapping more and more inside themselves and also in our communities, pointing forward to the complete reunion of heaven and earth. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was that complete overlap between heaven and earth. And now, with the Holy Spirit living within us, we also, as well as being fully human, we contain heaven. We're not that full realisation of the complete overlap of heaven and earth yet, but one day we will be, and that's the direction we want to be moving in with our whole lives. Second Corinthians 5, Paul writes about how we grow, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. There's a longing for heaven that God has placed in our hearts, and we want to see that overlap of heaven and earth increase, not just in our own lives, but throughout the earth. So when Jesus came, he wasn't seeing this overlap of heaven and earth around him. All four Gospels tell the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, uh, where he threw out people who were just doing things that were not godly, not what they should be doing in that place. There's debate about whether he did it once or twice, because while three of the Gospels put this story right after uh, Palm Sunday, so in the week before Jesus died, John puts it at the start of his Gospel. But most people think, and I tend to agree, that actually John just put it there at the start because it was such an important story to, to start with to say about you know, who Jesus was and what he came to do. But either way, whether, he, whether John put it there because of its importance or Jesus did it twice, either way, it's clearly important. And as Jesus did this, you see, he quoted Isaiah. He said, is it not written my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Because to Jesus, that's what the overlap of heaven and earth should have looked like in that temple, a house of prayer for all nations. A couple of weeks ago, Sue spoke about another house of prayer, David's tabernacle. This came before they had the temple that David's son Solomon oversaw building that. And this tabernacle was nothing special from an earthly point of view. But of all the time before Jesus came, it's probably the biggest, most consistent overlap of heaven and earth that ever was. In the temple, you had the Holy of Holies and the veil that kept the presence of God away from the rest of it. um, And only the high priest could go in at certain times after being ceremonially cleansed. But that didn't happen in David's tabernacle. It was a single room. And the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, was in that room all the time when people were in there, continuous prayer and worship day and night. And so many psalms written in that time coming out of that worship, probably at least half the psalms uh, in the Bible were written in that time. Jesus cleansing the temple, as I said, came straight after Palm Sunday. And there are similarities between Palm Sunday and the dedication of the tabernacle. Because that day they they brought the Ark of the Covenant back It hadn't been in Israel uh, and in Jerusalem for a long time. It had actually been lost in war. And so David was bringing this back, and it was the same day. It was actually his uh, kind of royal enthronement, although he had been king for a few years. He'd been out in the wilderness away uh, in fear of his life. So this was kind of his entrance, his coronation as king as well. When Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, he he came in on a donkey. You'd think, you know, you'd expect the king coming into his city, you'd expect to be on a horse or something and lots of royal robes, and yet Jesus came on a donkey in peasant rags. And yet it wasn't uh, a typical royal entry for David either. Think of uh, King Charles's coronation earlier this year, all that pomp and ceremony. There was nothing like that. David wore a linen ephod, not kingly robes. This was the garment of a priest, and not even the high priest's robes. But like it was the lowest of priests would wear this. Like imagine if King Charles had turned up in a dog collar. It's that kind of thing. (laughs) Not even the bishop's mitre, you know. And you'd expect for that day a coronation anthem, and David did write one, and it's Psalm twenty-four if you want to turn there. But it doesn't say a thing about David becoming king. Says this The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Imagine you're there on that day when David's having his coronation and the Ark of the Covenant's coming. And you're there, one of the people, probably loads of people, lining the streets. And they're singing this coronation anthem. And you get to the line Who is he, this King of Glory? What are you expecting the next line to be? It's David. David is the King of Glory. All hail, David. Swear all allegiance to David, for he is mighty. That's what you'd expect. That's what any other king would have written for themselves or had someone write for them. And yet, David didn't do that. He wanted all the attention to be on God, the true king of glory, not on himself at all. He knew he wasn't the star, he wasn't the center of attention in that moment. But it was the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. Uh, David Fritsch, in his book on uh, this, the Tabernacle of David, said, David knew they weren't just singing songs but we're building a throne and habitation for the king of kings to rule the land again. Habitation. It's familiar, that word. I'm not sure why. As I said before, last time I spoke, I talked a bit about uh, revivals and that guy John Tyson who went on his kind of tour with his family of all these places where there'd been revivals and how that one thing in common was that people were hungry. I don't know exactly where he went, didn't see his itinerary, but he may have gone to a place uh, in America in Kentucky called Asbury. Because in 1958, there was a revival there. And it's a, a Christian university there. Um, and then earlier this year, in February, there, it happened again. Um, it was just a Wednesday morning, they have in this Christian university what they call a compulsory chapel service. Which, so everyone's expected to be there. Now, as a teacher, I know that compulsory for students doesn't mean full attendance. They're not one and the same thing. But you'd hope most of the campus was there. And a guy preached there uh, called Zach Meerkrebs. And he says afterwards, it wasn't a good sermon. His, his phrase was, he totally whiffed, which is, um, Ameri- I think it's an American sports term, but for like when you're trying to hit the baseball, you completely miss it. Yet, some students responded afterwards. And approximately 15 to 20 students just stayed there. And hours later, they were still there. And not only were they still there, but others had come. People who were at that service and left, or maybe who hadn't been there, were in. And the number of people there was growing and growing because the presence of God was there in a way that was tangible and powerful. And it all came off a lousy sermon, so if the presence of God doesn't fall this morning, it's not on me. <laughs> and those hours later turned into days later, weeks later. And there's people saying the presence of God was so thick there that no one wanted to leave. Students were going to their dorm rooms, getting their mattresses and taking them over so they could sleep there. Others were preparing three meals in the morning so they didn't have to go come out to get lunch or dinner. And then people started coming from all over the world. As I said, I don't know if John Tyson went on his holiday, but he went there now just to see what was going on. Uh, Another Christian leader who did is Pete Hughes, who is the leader of KXC, that's King's Cross Church in London. Um, And he said, it was remarkable and it was unremarkable. It was overwhelming and it was underwhelming. He said it was underwhelming in that, you know, in a lot of ways... It didn't seem great, like the music wasn't great quality. There was no, nothing fancy in the presentation. They didn't even put lyrics on the screen. But the presence of God, he said, was overwhelming. He doesn't think he'd ever experienced the thickness of God's presence like he had before. And I was listening to him talk about this this week. and talks about he was a child in the 70s during something called the charismatic renewal movement. He said it was a time when the spirit was really moving in power in the church, in this country, and, and around the world. And you saw then like, lots of things like people shaking and falling over, tongues, healing, laughing in the spirit. He said Asbury was completely different. He didn't see only these manifestations of God's power, but this incredible sense of presence. And he said this, if the charismatic renewal movement was about the church rediscovering the power of the spirit... What I witnessed at Asbury was the church rediscovering the priority of presence. And he wants to say that talking to other pastors around the world since then, so many are saying the same thing, that there's a spiritual hunger they haven't experienced before. There's a stronger sense of God's presence in their worship. He talked about this sense that water levels are rising, that there's a threshold moment for the church here. We're on the uh, brink of a season change from winter to spring and that in the Bible when you, tran- when you transition from winter to spring that's marked by spring rains which are those gentle rains that water the ground to prepare it for abundance and it feels like just a trickle at the minute but there's this sense that there's a tidal wave coming that we can expect more that the spirit is moving in power I'm not telling you all this just because I think Pete Hughes is a good guy, so if he says it, it must be true. Although I do think he's a good guy, by the way. But I'm telling you this because when I heard him talking about this, when he spoke about this growing spiritual hunger around the world and this stronger sense of God's presence and being on the threshold of something, spring coming, it chimed with me and what I'm believing, what I'm feeling in my heart that God is doing now and what others I've already been speaking to saying, There's this sense in the church, in the world right now, that God is doing a new thing. He definitely is, and I don't want to miss out on it. I don't want us as a church to miss out on it. I want to press in, I want to take hold of all Jesus yeah. has for us and what he wants to do in this season. I was reminded of a couple of prophetic words that we had as a church going back many years, and I think it's good to come back to these at times and not just think, God said that then, that was for then, and move on. One was one about stepping out onto dead ground, this kind of brown, dirty ground. And as we did, as our feet went there, God would turn that ground green and bring life there, but we had to step first. And that was around the time, a little bit before we had the boiler room, which for those who don't know, when we had a place in the town centre of Ormskirk where we have already done quite a bit of this 24-hour prayer. Um, And we... We did a number of things that came out of the boiler room doing that, but you might look back at that and think, well, we did it for a bit, then we shut it down, and we didn't see massive revival or anything. So you might look at that and think, it didn't really work, actually. wish we hadn't done that. But I don't think that, because a lot of prayers in that place were answered, but a lot of prayers are still to be answered, and they're going to be answered. Because when we do this 24-hour prayer, we are building on the prayers we've already prayed before in that place, and just because it hasn't come to the full fruition we might have wanted and hoped to see at that time doesn't mean, going forward, what we did then isn't going to be part of the legacy we're building on with all we do now. We're going to see ground turn green as we step out. We're going to see the spring rains come and bring abundance. Another prophecy, this one we've had more than once, again going back years, It's from Isaiah 54, verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent, Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. It's all about widening and inviting people in. And what's happening in the church worldwide at the minute and just links with that so much. And at the same time, we've got this property now in the center of Ormskirk. And we're trying to get a building there. We want to bring people in. Maybe we don't need to. Maybe we just need to put a tabernacle there. Maybe we should just knock up a gazebo and start (laughs) worshiping. God is doing something and he's calling his people to more of his presence <clears throat> in this time. And that's why we're having this 24-hour prayer because you want to seek that presence. I just want to come back to the Lord's Prayer because I talked before about your kingdom come, but before that, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed or holy or set apart. There's a reason this is at the start of the prayer. Because God's holiness should be our starting place for prayer. We can so easily skip past it in a rush to try and tell God what we want him to do. See, even if we start with God's holiness, sometimes it's just a quick detour. God, you're holy, so I've got a list of things I want you to do. As though we're praying to Father Christmas. And I believe in this time, and as we have this 24-hour prayer in a couple of weeks, that God wants us to start our prayer and worship simply by focusing on his holiness and being prepared to stay there for as long as he calls us to. It may be for a short time before we move on to pray and other things. It may be all we focus on all weekend, simply God's holiness. And if that idea worries you, I've got bad news for you. Because when heaven and earth are fully brought together, that's what's going to be happening. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah has this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him was set of him, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. <clears throat> you see a very similar picture in Revelation 4 with John's vision. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In both cases, it's not just holy, or even holy, holy, but holy, 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 three times. We sometimes sing these in a number of songs, and sometimes it's sung quite softly, quite gently. Oh, isn't it nice how holy you are, God? But we miss something in that. See, in those days when they were writing the Scriptures, there was no bold, they didn't underline, they didn't use block capitals, they used repetition. So this is not just some nice holy, holy, holy. This is a cry of holy. Isaiah was a prophet. This was a special vision for him. But now in these days, when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, being a prophet is not just for the chosen few. God wants to speak to everyone and through everyone. Tabernacle of David That was just a foretaste of what is to come when heaven and earth are fully reunited and we're crying, holy, 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 because we can't cry anything else in the presence of the Lord. That is God's kingdom come. If you want to build God's kingdom, if you want to bring heaven and earth closer together, we need to be crying that out, holy, holy, holy. We need to start our prayers simply by focusing on God's holiness and not looking to move on until God tells us to. Yes. I mentioned before that charismatic renewal movement in the 70s, where the spirit was moving in power with lots of tongues and miracles. And one of the leaders of that was a guy called John Wimber. Mm-hmm. And before that movement started, he was reading the book of Acts, and he was thinking, we should be seeing the same thing today. And should be seeing that. So we just, as I'm stepping into it. I'm going to try and make all this stuff happen. And he saw no fruit. And so he's really discouraged. And so he went, he was in a hotel room while he was away doing this. He said, he just prayed to God and said, I've had enough. I'm quitting. Because it's nothing's happening. And he hears a whisper. And he says, I've seen what you can do. And now I want to show you what I can do. And the charismatic renewal movement followed that. I'm not saying it was just that one moment and just one mim- John Wimber because there were others involved. But that, mo- that could only happen because anyone else involved, it wasn't just about what they could do but seeing what God can do. I want to see what God can do in this place, in this time. Yes. See, as leaders, we've been talking about the year ahead and planning and we haven't planned lots or even any new ministries. Yeah. We've been talking about creating a rhythm for our lives that will bring about our mission of being a habitation of the presence of God within our community so that we can see not the best we can do by coming up with some plans but seeing the best that God can do by seeking his face, seeking his wholeness and that's why we're doing 24 hour prayer, that's our big plan for the year like Sue was talking about the other week, David's big plan for that his, the nation of Israel then, was let's just set up a prayer tent in the middle of the city. Our plan is let's get in our town centre and start praying and see what God can do. And you may worry, it might just turn into some holy huddle. And it can do that sometimes. You get so focused on, we'll just pray here and forget the outside world. But if we're truly seeking God's face rather than just trying to be together, it won't happen. It will have impact outside the church. Tyler Staten from Bridgetown Church says, fruitfulness is the collateral damage of intimacy. Sue spoke a couple of weeks ago. She said, I believe fully God is restoring the tabernacle in these days. It's getting faster and faster and more obvious. When his presence is manifest in our midst, people will be falling over to come to know him. There's lots of things I want to see changed in this world, in this town, in my life. There's altars I want to see torn down. And I could go about and try and do it myself. And I may, I may pull something small down. I may accomplish something little. But if I seek God in his presence, there's no limit to what he can do. I'm going to finish now. I want to invite the uh, musicians to come back up. I'm just going to, as they're getting ready, I'm just going to finish with a prayer. And a prayer, I'm just going to read Psalm 24 again. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? the Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Amen.